We are going to be in Luke chapter 15 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to find Luke 15. As I was preparing for this passage, I was thinking about relationships a good deal and how uh, we live in a unique era in which social media allow us to connect with people that we otherwise might lose touch with. That can be one of the great things about Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever it may be. You can connect with people you might otherwise have lost touch with. The downside sometimes is you find yourself at times connecting with people that you would just as soon not connect with anymore. Uh, People from your past, perhaps, that you sort of wish you could forget and leave behind. Uh, A few years ago, I received a friend request on Facebook from a guy that I had known from junior high and high school. And I was surprised to get the request because I wouldn't say that he and I were friends uh, back in that era. We didn't really run in the same circles. And to be honest, I remembered him as a bully and uh, as a heavy drinker and as somebody that didn't really run in my club. He was more in the football group. I uh, may surprise you, I was not. uh, Not because they didn't want me, you know, just because I didn't join that group. So uh, he was more in that group. I was not. We just were in different places. And yet when he friended me, by that point in my life, I was already a pastor, so I couldn't really say no. So I went ahead and accepted the request. And uh, as I began to read his posts, I was surprised to find that he was posting about his relationship with God through Jesus Christ and how he had come to know the Lord after college. Praise the Lord, right? Uh, if I'm honest, though, that wasn't my first thought. My first thought was, seriously? Really? And then to my shame, my second thought was, uh, you know, this guy still has some rough edges and everything. I'm not sure that I want him in my club, associated with me, Maybe this person who did these things and said these things and still has these challenges, maybe if he's in my club, that reflects badly on me. And then as often happens, the Spirit of God began to convict my heart, and I hate it when that happens, and began to remind me, it's not your club. It's God's club. And I don't get to decide who God invites into his club. Uh, God invites people in that I may not like. See, if I were putting together a club, I would put it together based on people that I like, people who are like me, people who share my interests, people who share my values, people that I want to be around. And once I made sure they met all the criteria, then I would invite them in. What we see in the scripture is God doesn't operate that way. Instead, God goes out beyond our boundaries and our categories, and he brings people in through the grace of Jesus Christ. And then begins to transform them into his character, into his image. See, you and I draw boundaries often to keep people on the other side, to be able to say, I'm in, you're out. And I just assume you would stay out and don't let the door hit you in the rear on the way out, right? Instead, what God does is he crosses boundaries to bring people in. As we look at Luke 15 this morning, we're going to see a few pictures of the lavish love of God. And how what God does is he loves to rescue 
hopeless sinners. He loves to bring in those who seem the most hopeless, the most outcast, the farthest away from him. God loves to rescue hopeless sinners. And of course, what we're going to see is we are all hopeless sinners. In other words, it's not like there's one group of people that deserve the mercy and the grace and love of God and another group of people who do not. Instead, there is one group, all who are lost and outcast in sin, apart from him. And God goes out through Jesus Christ and brings those men and women to himself. There are some of you in here this morning that you are keenly aware that you're a hopeless sinner. You came in here this morning feeling shame. And as we talk about the love of God, what you feel is your unworthiness to be known by him because of things you've said, things you've done, things you've thought because of greed, anger, pride, lust, and distance from God, and you come in and you feel that you're a hopeless sinner. And the good news of Luke 15 is that God loves you so much that he gave his only son so you could know him. There are others in here that if you're like I sometimes am, you're tempted to forget how much you've been forgiven. And so you think of those that stand outside perhaps of our circles, those whose sin seems abhorrent to you or those who make you uncomfortable. And so you think about maybe those whose sexual choices are sinful. You think perhaps of those whose mindset is wrong, maybe their understanding of the world or their politics or whatever is wrong and sinful. You think perhaps of family members or friends who have offended you and upset you, people that you don't see eye to eye with. You think of those in your workplace or in your neighborhood, and perhaps they are gossips or liars, or they are far from God, and you say, those people belong out, and I belong in, and you have a hard time seeing correctly through the lens of God's grace. If that is you, then Luke 15 is directed to you and me to communicate that all of us are in desperate need of the grace of God. And what God loves to do is rescue hopeless sinners and draw them to himself. That's the message of Luke 15. Let's start in verse 1 of Luke 15. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, this was a common complaint about Jesus, particularly in the book of Luke, which focuses on Jesus' attitude toward the outcast. The Pharisees and the scribes were the religious leaders, and the Pharisees in particular were focused on purity. Their name, in fact, derives from a word that means set apart or pure. They were deeply concerned that the Jewish people remain pure in their approach to the law of Moses, in their approach to their relationship to God. And so when Jesus sat down to eat with tax collectors and sinners, that was offensive to them. Tax collectors were very hated in first century Israel. It's not that they're the most popular people today, right? You probably didn't have a celebration last Wednesday on tax day or anything like that, right? But in their community, tax collectors were traitors, Because what they did is they gathered taxes on behalf of the Roman government, on behalf of the Gentile pagan Roman government. They took money from the Jewish people, gave it to the enemy, and usually they even collected more than they really needed to collect so they could line their own pockets as well. Lucian, a first century philosopher and satirist, says that their moral standing was the same as pimps, yes-men, adulterers, and informers. 
That's how tax collectors were thought of. Jesus is eating with the scum of the earth. And the concern on behalf of the Pharisees and scribes is if if this teacher connects with these sinners, he jeopardizes the purity of the Jewish people and might even invite the judgment of God. They're probably thinking of passages like Psalm 1-1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He goes on to say, but his delight is what? In the law of the Lord. And so this objection comes back to Jesus over and over again. And the way he always answers is this. I am not sitting with them or eating with them just in order to be their pal. I am not sitting with them or eating with them in order so that they will rub off so I can be like them. But instead, I go out and I sit and I eat with the tax collectors and sinners because they need to know God. And God has sent me as his ambassador to draw them back to him. And so in Luke 5, for example, when this same objection came up, Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Repentance. The mission of Jesus' life was to go beyond those boundaries to the outcast, the sinner, and tell them the good news that God loved them and through Jesus was calling them to know Him. And yet, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Jewish leaders often failed to get the message. So, here in Luke 15, Jesus tells a series of three stories to drive home this point that God loves to rescue hopeless sinners. In Luke 15, we find three stories. There are three stories. There are three images of God, one in each story, the shepherd, the woman, and the father. There are three lost items, a sheep, a coin, and a son. Each story ends with a party. There are three parties in Luke 15, but there's one point, and the point is this, that God loves to rescue sinners. All three stories build on each other and tell this same point that Jesus will say to the Pharisees and the scribes, this is why I'm here, to save those that you call outside. And so as we continue in Luke 15, Jesus begins with this story of the lost sheep to make this point that God loves to rescue sinners, starting in verse 3, we see the story of the lost sheep. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, I grew up in Dallas, so I didn't spend a lot of time around sheep, Uh, but I have read a little bit about sheep. And my understanding is, as you probably know, they are not the most ferocious animal in the world. Okay? They don't have a whole lot of natural defenses. Uh, they don't have like really sharp, vicious teeth. It's rare that you would know someone who went to the ER for a sheep bite, right? Uh, I actually talked to a lady last week who told me she was bitten by a sheep, but as we talked about it, it turned out her hand actually was in its mouth when it bit her. So it wasn't like it went after her. She stuck her hand in there and, you know, it kind of nipped her or whatever. And I said, did you have to go to the ER? She goes, no, just to a little clinic. They kind of, you know, bandaged me up or whatever. Like, that's the extent of what the sheep could do. You just kind of go, ow, right? Like that. Okay, they don't have a lot of sharp teeth. They don't have sharp claws. They've got little hooves. I mean, I guess they could kind of go like this or something. Uh, 
they have big, fluffy coats, right? They're big, fluffy, white, extremely tasty. And so they are kind of like the marshmallow of nature. That's really what a sheep is. They just kind of wander around. So, and they know a little bit about their place in the world. So if they wander away from the flock, they are easily frightened. And what a sheep will do when it wanders away is it will crawl under a bush or a tree and just begin to bleat for help. Meh, meh, like that. And that's great because the shepherd can hear. The downside of that is like to a lion or a wolf, it sounds a lot like snack, snack, right? And so a lion or a wolf (laughs) will come and eat them up quickly if they're not saved. So the shepherd knows when the sheep runs away that he has an urgent situation and he will leave. Jesus says any shepherd will do this. Any good shepherd does this. You leave the 99 behind and you go after that one. And there may be an assistant shepherd or a shepherd intern or something that's over there with those, with those sheep. But the main shepherd will leave the 99 and he will go after the one. And when he finds it, by the time he finds it, that sheep is so afraid, so freaked out, so tired, its legs don't even work anymore. They're just rubbery. And so he'll pick up that 70-pound sheep, drape it over his shoulder, and walk it home rejoicing. And then he calls all his friends and they have a sheep party, right? <laughs> go on Pinterest, they make sheep cupcakes and all this kind of stuff, and they get sheep hats, and they have this huge party, and they say, rejoice with me, I found the sheep that was lost, it's back with me, and Jesus says, that is how God reacts when a person who is far away is brought back in close, when one sinner repents and comes back to him. Now, anybody listening to this story in the first century in Israel would have recognized the story, because all the way through the Old Testament, Who is portrayed as a good shepherd? It's God. What's the most famous psalm, the one that you probably heard before any other? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I lack. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. Actually, that phrase, he renews my life, is from the Hebrew for the same word that Jesus uses for repentance here. He returns, he restores, he turns me around and saves my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. That's what God does. You and I are sheep that are lost, and God takes care of us and he brings us back. And Jesus says that's how God is oriented toward those that you consider outcasts and unworthy. Now, what is repentance? Jesus talks about the sinner who repents. Well, look at the story. What does the sheep do? Not not a whole lot, right? He gets lost, right? That's one thing. And then he does what? He calls out for help. Meh. Calls out for help. He realizes he's lost. He's separated from his shepherd. And he calls for that shepherd to save him. And the shepherd searches high and low over hill through valleys, everywhere, until he finds it. Jesus says when that happens, when a sinner recognizes he is lost and separated from God, and he needs God for salvation, and he calls out for that help, God finds him, brings him in, and then celebrates more so than 99 righteous people who stand inside the circle and say, I don't even need repentance. The category of men and women who do not need repentance is a false category. Jesus is being tongue-in-cheek. It's actually 99 people who think they need no repentance. He says, God rejoices when that one, that one that I'm sitting with at the table that you say is a sinner, a tax collector that God doesn't want, God rejoices if even one 
comes back. And that principle then will weave its way into the next story, which is the story of the lost coin, verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Different story, but again, the same point. Now notice, this time, instead of a hundred sheep, we have ten coins. So the number is going down, and the value is going up. This may have been one of her dowry coins that she brought into the marriage. To lose one was a big deal. And she drops it on the floor, and in their day, the house probably was made of like a black stone, a black basalt stone. There would have been little slender windows high up in the walls, not a whole lot of light, no, no, obviously no electric lights, and it would have been dirty on the floor. And so if she drops one of those coins and cannot find it, she's going to have to light this oil lamp and sweep through the dirt and maybe get down on her hands and knees and sweep around on the ground until she finds it. Could take hours, could take days. And she finds it, and she calls her friends, she calls her neighbors, and she says, we're having a party. That's what God does when he finds and brings in a lost sinner. I was talking about these stories with my five-year-old son about a week and a half ago, and he said, Daddy, I don't understand why they'd have a party about a coin. Right? It's, just, it's just a coin. You know, and he's probably thinking like a dime or a penny or something. Why would you have a big party? And so I said, well, Samuel, have you ever lost something that was important to you? And he said, yes, I lost my flashlight. Right? I bought him a $4 flashlight one day at Lowe's, and he lost it. I said, how would you feel if you found it? And he said, I would feel good. So would you tell any friends? I said, yeah, I would tell. And he began to tell me the friends that he would tell if he found the flashlight. I said, what if, if you found it, then what would you do with the flashlight? He goes, I would put it where it goes, where I would never lose it again. Okay, you get that? That's what this story is saying. When God finds those who are lost, he takes them to himself, he holds on, and they never can get lost again. And so he throws a party. Because he loves to rescue hopeless sinners, and Jesus is the means by which he rescues those sinners. That's why Jesus came. And so then Jesus moves into the third story as he introduces his topic with these first two, the story of the lost son, verses 11 to 32. And we're going to walk through this story, but to set the stage before we start reading it, you need to think about the first two stories again. Who is the main character in the first two stories? The main character is not actually the sheep or the coin. The main character is God, right? These are stories about the love of God, about the character of God. When we think about this third story, we are accustomed to calling it the story of what? The prodigal son. But the story actually isn't about that younger son. The story is about God and how he responds to lost sinners, And Jesus sets up a story of a lost son. Again, remember, we start with 100 sheep. We move to 10 coins. Now we've got two sons, an older son and a younger son. So Jesus begins by saying a man had two sons. And we know one of them is going to get lost. So the numbers have decreased. The value has gone up. You can replace sheep. You can replace coins. You cannot replace sons. Any parent who's been a parent for a while has probably experienced the terror that comes from temporarily misplacing a child. It happened to my wife and me a number of years ago when our middle daughter was two at the church picnic 
at Veterans Park with three or four hundred people around. She was playing on the playground. She walked around behind one of the pieces of equipment. And by the time I got around to where she was, I couldn't find her. She was gone. I looked around the playground. I looked around the vicinity. I couldn't find her. I began to panic. We actually had an announcement made over the PA system. If you have seen a small child, please bring her back. Hey, she's ours. We looked around. 20, 30 minutes, finally a college student came up holding her and said, is this yours? Right? <laughs> yes. And we took her and we rejoiced and we were relieved. And Jesus taps into that feeling you have when a child is lost, except in this case, the son doesn't just wander off. He runs away in the most disrespectful way imaginable. Look at verse 11. He said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. This was an unbelievably disrespectful request. In that day and age, uh, if you as a son said this to your father, the father would be within his rights to beat the son and maybe even to disown him and send him away with nothing at all. Even in this day and age, you know that it would be inappropriate to go to your parents while they're still alive and say, Dad, go ahead and divide up the money and give me the inheritance I have coming when you're dead. Right? Open up the 401k, sell the house, divide it all up, and give me my money. What would that communicate? You care more about the stuff than you do about your parents. Right? Briefly, when my younger brother was about four. He went through a phase where he would ask people if he could have certain items of theirs when they were dead. Okay? Now, it was uncomfortable for all of us. Okay? But people usually just kind of laughed and they kind of brushed it off and they kind of moved on because when you're four, it's kind of cute and you know he'll grow out of it. It is not cute when you're 40 because it's disrespectful. And it communicates, I wish you were dead and I don't want to have a relationship with you anymore. Now remember, in that day and age, the property would not have been in money. There was no 401k they could divvy up. It would have been land and cattle, sheep, goats, things along those lines. Amazingly, the father grants the request. This is no ordinary father, apparently. He doesn't disown the son. He grants the request. And it says, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. So the son gathers everything together, and it says not many days later, he gathered it all and he left. Here's what he does. He takes the sheep, the goats, the land, and he sells it and he turns it into cash. So he goes to the village, to his father's friends, probably to some of his father's family, and he humiliates his dad by taking his stuff and saying, will you buy my dad's stuff so I can leave? you can imagine, even as people are buying it, they're buying it guiltily, and others in the village are angry, and so he quickly gets out of Dodge, and he runs away, and he takes his cash, and almost as quickly as he leaves, he blows through the money, and it's all gone, and then bad luck compounds his bad choices. There's a famine in the land. He can't find anything to eat. 
He has to find a job. The only job he can find is feeding pigs, which for a young Jewish man would have been the deepest of humiliations because to touch a pig, to eat a pig, would make you ceremonially unclean. You could not worship in the temple. You couldn't even touch other people. You couldn't live in community with your fellow Jews. He sells himself out to a Gentile pig farmer. He goes in to feed the pigs, and it says not only is he touching pigs, living with them, serving the pigs. He actually begins to envy the pigs because it says he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that would have been carob pods like little peas that the pigs are eating. He would have gladly eaten those, but no one gave him anything. In other words, his boss wouldn't even give him some of the peas for the pigs, apparently thinking, you know what? Those are not for you. Those are for the pigs. The pigs are more important than you, pal. And so now you have a son who has run away, disrespected his father, severed that relationship, and he reaps what he sows. He's far away, and he's hungry, and he's alone, and nobody's with him. And as the story goes on then, it says, when he came to his senses, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, this boy knows he has a dilemma if he goes home because he faces probably scorn, ridicule. In fact, the Jewish people had a ritual they called the kazaza, or the cutting off ceremony, where if he came back in the village, they might uh, smash a bowl that was filled with burnt corn and burnt nuts. They would smash it in his presence, and they would chant, this boy is cut off from his people. This boy is cut off from his people and they would drive him to the edge of town and force him to leave forever. So he has to be pretty low to decide to go home. But he realizes he cannot earn the money back. There's no way he could pay back the inheritance by working as a pig farmer. It would be like trying to earn a million dollars and pay it back working for 10 bucks an hour at Denny's. You'd never get there. But he also recognizes on some level that his father is a good employer at least a just and merciful person. So he says, I know that dad pays his workers well. I'll get up, I'll confess my sin, and I will beg to be hired on. Okay, now, in order to understand what happens next at the climax of the story, you need to think again about the first two stories. In the first story, what does that shepherd do? Scours everywhere he can find for that sheep. He looks, he looks, he looks. What does the woman do with the coin? She looks and she looks and she looks till she finds it. What does the father do? Well, we know he looks and he looks and he looks until he finds that boy. How do we know that? Because it says that he got up, the boy got up and came to him, and it says while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, way off outside in the distance. Now picture their village and what it would have looked like. Houses very close together, narrow roads. You probably could touch your neighbor's house from your balcony. Only maybe a horse, maybe a person or two could go down those roads. And in the center of town, somewhat elevated, would have been the wealthier members of the community like this father. On the second floor, there would have been a balcony. And so picture this father standing on this balcony day after day after day after day, morning to night, morning to night, looking out in the field for the sun. Because he knows the boy will come back. Because he knows the boy's going to fail. 
And it says he saw him a long way off. When he finally sees him, look what he does. It says he ran. He felt compassion for him and he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. Now keep in mind, this father wasn't wearing sweatpants or athletic shorts, right? He's wearing a long oriental robe. Middle Eastern patriarchs don't run. You know why? Well, ladies, if you've ever tried to run in a long skirt or a dress, you know what it looks like, right? You have to reach down and grab the hem of that dress, and you pull it up a little bit, and you have to kind of do this deal, right? It looks awkward and uncomfortable, maybe a little embarrassing. For the patriarch of the family to do this toward a rebellious son in the sight of all of the community was deeply humiliating, and it wasn't done. Maybe mom could run and meet him, but never dad. This is no ordinary father. And he runs to meet him. And why does he do that? Because I think the father knows that he wants to get there and express his love before the villagers get there to express their condemnation. And he grabs him and he embraces him and he hugs him and he kisses him. And the father endures this humiliation so the son doesn't have to. And the son begins his speech. He says, Father, I have sinned in heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops there. He doesn't say the part about being a hired hand. Because when your father has just embraced you and hugged you and kissed you, it would be an insult to then say, by the way, can I work my way back into your favor? So he stops, and he knows his unworthiness, and he knows he's lost. And the father turns around to his slaves, and he says, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. The robe was for the guest of honor at the banquet. Bring out the best one. Now remember, the boy is still filthy, he's dirty, but the father covers him up in this robe. Put a ring on his finger. The ring was a sign of family inclusion. It probably had the family seal on it. It may have even given the boy authority to act as a representative to conduct business on behalf of the family. After all he's done, the father immediately gives him this ring and says, you're in my family. Put sandals on his feet. Slaves didn't wear sandals, only family members. And then he turns and he says, kill the fattened calf, bring the fattened calf, kill it, Let us eat and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they begin to have a party, and they celebrate. And that is the lavish love of the father. He runs to meet this boy, and he says, you're in my family because you're my son, and I love you. And what goes not directly stated in the parable but is clear in the context. Not only does God love to rescue hopeless sinners, but Jesus is the means through which God does that. And what Jesus is communicating to all who are listening is that this is why God sent me, that Jesus would die and rise again to bring hopeless sinners who trust in him to know him. In fact, in Luke 19, Jesus refers back to the concepts of this parable. For the Son of Man has come, why? to seek and save the lost. God cares deeply about those tax collectors, those sinners, those outcasts, those whose sins seem abhorrent to me. And he gave his son to draw them in. Now, of course, you know, there's one more character in the story, and that is the elder brother. Now, his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, 
He heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I, now count the eyes and the mys in this boy's speech, I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. What he doesn't say is, except this one, to come into the banquet, right? And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice the distancing, not my brother, right? Dads, if you ever come home and your wife says, guess what your son did today? All right, the answer is almost never like he gave to a charity or he read Tolstoy or something. (laughs) The answer is always something bad, right? It's a distancing term. This son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. Maybe true, maybe not. The elder son certainly doesn't know that that's how he spent the money, probably exaggerating his sin. You killed the fattened calf for him. Now notice what the father says. Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. In other words, he says to this elder boy, you have deeply misunderstood the nature of your relationship with me. See, to the elder son, everything was about merit. I have worked, I have earned, I deserve. And by even listening to him, the father is giving him here more than he deserves, just like he was with the younger son. The father was within his rights to beat or send away this elder boy for his disrespect and his rebellion and his refusal to come into the banquet. But the father goes out and he graciously pleads with him, come in, come in, come in. You are a part of the family. Come in and celebrate with the rest of the family. He says, all that is mine is yours. It's always been yours. In other words, you never earned a thing. Look around you. You live in my house. You eat my food. You wear clothes from my sheep and my animals. Everything you have came from me. You didn't earn any of it. You want a goat? You have every goat that I own because I gave it to you. But then he says, we had to celebrate because this brother of yours, notice he changes it back. This brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. That one that you want to kick out, he's your brother. And I brought him in. And the banquet is about me and my mercy and my grace. And so we had to celebrate. Will you accept that I am a father who extends grace to the sinner and the outcast? Now, if this were a movie and it ended here, uh, we'd be frustrated, wouldn't we? But what happens? Does the older brother come in? Does he come in? What happens? What's the end of the story? Well, that's exactly the point. This is a cliffhanger ending because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the implied question is, will you accept and extend the grace of God? Do you understand that nothing you have has been earned? Do you understand that you cannot stand inside of this circle and say, I am better, I deserve, I have earned, and look outside and say, they don't get to come in until they're like me. That's not the way God operates. The question that Jesus is posing to these men and I think to us is will you and I accept the grace of God and will we extend the grace of God to those who are in desperate need of it? Will we accept the grace of God for those who are here this morning and you know that you are one of those hopeless sinners? You know it, you feel it. And maybe you've never entered into a relationship with God through Jesus. The great news of Luke 15 is that that's why Jesus came 
so you can know God. That's why he died on a cross in your place, in my place. That's why he rose again to defeat sin, to take death away forever, and to send the Spirit to draw us near to God so we can know him. That is what God has done for you and for me, no matter how desperate, no matter how terrible, no matter how sinful you are. Will you accept God's grace and believe in Jesus for eternal life and a relationship with him? And then will you extend God's grace? For those who know him, will you, you and I, will we then go out into our world and be ambassadors of the good news of Jesus Christ? To those who are different, to those whose sins we find repulsive, to those that we don't get along with, even to our enemies, will we go to our places of work, into our neighborhoods, into our communities, and proclaim that there's a God that loves them so much that if you say you want to know him through his son, he runs across every boundary, and he seeks you out and he draws you in. And that faith in Jesus Christ is all that is necessary to know him and have eternal life. As Eddie mentioned earlier, we are launching a new campus not because we just want to put more people in buildings, but because we want to have a greater capacity to impact this community, every area of this community, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of those people as we close this morning that you say, I know that there's somebody at my office, I know that there's somebody in my neighborhood, I know that there's somebody in my family who needs to know that God loves them. And maybe they haven't heard it, or maybe what they've heard is anger and isolation and condemnation, and you and I have an opportunity to be an ambassador of the love of Jesus Christ and say, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have thought, no matter what you have said, God loves you in Jesus Christ and wants to know you. Will you and I be those ambassadors this week to at least one person and maybe more until our community and our world comes to know the lavish love of God the Father? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus, who is a living representation of your love. We thank you that you are that type of father who runs to greet us as soon as we call for help, as soon as we know we're lost and in need of your grace and mercy. You wrap your arms around us, embrace us, and you tell us where we can find it, in Jesus Christ. I pray we would be ambassadors of that great name to share the message of your love with the world around us. We thank you for this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.